0: What would you think of a superpower that met with a crisis because it was giving too much to its citizens and so it was overextending in its expenditures to what it was taking in? It had uh, several... um, This financial crisis was exasperated, it was made worse by several forays into military conflicts in far-flung places away from uh, the capital, and that as a result, there was an attempt to be able to give people what they want by printing money, that is, by producing more money available out there that devalued the currency, so much so that in like just even a very brief period of time, there was an 8% inflation rate. Uh, the superpower that I'm talking about is the Roman Empire in the early AD 60s. Uh, Nero was the emperor, and... Um, They had done several things. They had gotten involved in some conflicts in Britain and Armenia. There had been several natural disasters. There was a great fire in Rome in which a large part of the capital was destroyed and the expense to rebuild Rome was enormous. And so to deal with this new financial pressure, Neil began to produce copper and brass coins Uh, instead of silver ones, and in fact, he had debased this coinage in such a degree that in Alexandria in Egypt, the silver content of the coins fell from 23% to 15%, so that's an 8% devaluation, right? And he'd gathered all of the old coins and gathered them up, which is why coins before AD 65 are rare, okay? and he replaced them with all these new devalued coins that didn't have as much silver in them. Uh, It's estimated that just what happened in the city of Alexandria was enough to quote unquote fund the rebuilding of Rome after the great fire. So plentiful were these coins that Nero made uh, as an attempt to solve his economic problems, they were so plentiful that in the early 20th century, when people would find them, they, had, they would get more money by melting them down rather than selling them as old coins. That was how plentiful those coins were. Um, in that environment of this superpower, that is in trouble financially there was the casting about for finding someone to blame for all of these problems and this is why we come to second timothy chapter two i invite you to open your bibles there this is why the apostle paul is in prison he had been in prison before because of a issue with the jews in jerusalem but he had been released and had done several things. We've talked about that, especially in our introduction to this, this letter to 2 Timothy. But now he's been rearrested as part of a great persecution against Christians. The Roman historian Tacitus writes about this. He's not a Christian, he's a secular historian And yet this is what Tacitus writes about that time. Therefore, to stop the rumor that he, Nero, had set Rome on fire, Nero falsely charged with guilt and punished with most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians who were generally hated for their enormities. That just means they were hated for their beliefs. Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. Isn't that fascinating that a secular Roman historian knows enough about the story of Jesus to explain that? But the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out yet again, not only through Judea where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, where all things horrible and disgraceful flow from all quarters as to a common receptacle where they are encouraged. Accordingly, first those who were arrested, who confessed that they were Christians, next on their information, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the city, but on the charge of hating the human race." You see, the issue for the persecution of Christians in the AD 60s was not that they had been falsely accused of burning the city of Rome, but because they weren't getting with the program. They weren't joining in, and as a result, they were regarded as haters of the human race. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing under arrest here, and what I find fascinating is that he does not write about the politics of the day. He does not write about what Christians should do politically or how they should endure persecution or how they should stop it or what politically they could do, for example, to overthrow wicked Nero. He does none of that. Instead, here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, he marks out the priority, the priority for the Christian in this life. It is not political engagement as it is evangelistic. I invite you to open your Bibles again, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. In chapter 1, we saw that Paul had urged Timothy to fan into flame uh, the gift that he has for the sake of the gospel verses 8 to 12, to be bold for the gospel. Verses 13 to 18, to guard the deposit of the gospel. And now we come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, entrust the gospel to others. Entrust the gospel to others. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Please have a seat. Paul begins by saying that we should be strengthened by grace, and entrust the gospel to others. God wants Christians, and particularly Christian leaders, to be strong in grace. What does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, not legalistic. Being strong in grace or being strengthened by grace means not being legalistic. That is, to make up a bunch of human-made rules, and then to satisfy them and make, make yourself feel good that you have satisfied a bunch of rules that you yourself made up. Uh, no, not legalistic, but freedom-loving. Freedom-loving that Jesus Christ has set us free from the slave market of sin, and we can live in that freedom. Uh, being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus means not stuck in tradition, You think about Paul's uh, tradition as a Jew, all of the traditions of Judaism. He was not stuck in those traditions, but willing to try new things, being strengthened by the grace, not focused on maintaining. Paul wasn't about saying, all right, you and me, Timothy, we're in this together, let's hold on strong. Now, he does say that, right? Right? Earlier in the chapter, guard the deposit of the gospel, but he's also about loving Jesus in front of others, to put Christ on display before a watching world. He's not paralyzed by what he can't do. You know, he could have written all kinds of things that he couldn't do as he's under this arrest. In his first arrest, he was under house arrest and he had quite a bit of liberty. Here, he's not. He's in chains and he's limited, extremely limited by what he can do, but you don't read about this. He's not paralyzed by what he can't do, but energized by what God can do. Leaders, Christians who are strong in grace. God wants leaders and Christians who produce other Christians. This is the mission that we have. Look at it in verse 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice the progression. Paul takes words in the presence of other people and imparts them to Timothy to entrust them to faithful other people who then will teach other. Paul is thinking generationally here. It's not program-oriented. It's not, okay, now, come up with a discipleship program. (laughs) It's relationship-driven. It's not finance-based. It's not based on, now, Timothy, make sure you raise enough money for the programs in the church there at Ephesus. Instead, and I'll use an old word here, it's disciple-making-based. It's where one person is sharing with another person and that with the goal of sharing with others. It's not captive to an organization, but dedicated to the care and feeding of what we might term an organism, a living thing that's called the church. When Paul says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful others who will be able to teach others, still others, He's talking about a communication of the Christian faith from one generation to another. It's communication, first of all, in relationship. Paul to Timothy, they have a relationship with one another. It's a communication in community, in the presence of many witnesses. It's not just Paul and Timothy. It's many witnesses, many others in community. It's a communication of life, in trust to faithful others. By the way, (laughs) that presumes that you're engaged with others. So many of us live very isolated lives. Engaged with others. It also presumes that you have some discernment in identifying in whom to invest your life. It says, entrust to faithful others. Now, you know that's not going to be perfect, right? Not even Jesus or Paul had all of their disciples walk with Christ for for their whole lives. But... Paul is implying here that Timothy should exercise some discernment in thinking about in whom to invest his life. It's a communication in relationship, in community. It's a communication of life. And it's a communication of equipping these faithful others that Timothy is entrusting the gospel to who will be able then to teach still others. And so the message of Christianity moves from one generation to the next. Be strengthened by grace and entrust the gospel to others. Now, as Paul is giving this key command for the Christian, this is what we're supposed to do. He gives three illustrations of how we are to go about it. An illustration of a soldier an illustration of an athlete, and the illustration of a farmer. Let, let's look at each of those in turn. First, be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That is, leaders with the dedication of a soldier who focuses and endures. This will involve hardship together, which is why the first statement there in verse 3 is share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of being with a group of soldiers that had been together in battle, but it's a great experience. What you will discover is that those who have endured battle together look back on that time of significant hardship And don't deny the hardships, but they also look back with some degree of fondness for the camaraderie that they had experienced together in battle. In fact, many will describe it as, I've never felt so close to other human beings in my life. We're in a battle, friends. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we Christians are in a battle, the battle for the souls of boys and girls and men and women. Our job is to entrust the gospel to others who will be able to teach others also. And Paul tells us that we need to remember that this is a battle and that we are soldiers in the battle. Now, I just want you to imagine for a moment this wonderful fellowship of East White Oak Bible Church gathered together in heaven. One day we're with the Lord in heaven. And there is, I, I have no idea if this will ever happen, but there, let's just say that there's a reunion of East White Oak people in heaven. Don't you think that we will together have a camaraderie of having been in the battle together that would just enhance our fellowship and our closeness. I just think that's something kind of cool to, to think about. To be a good soldier of Christ Jesus, sharing in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. Now, verse four, tells us that a soldier needs to stay focused. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Soldiers cannot get entangled in the affairs of everyday life. So, Understand, Paul is in prison because of the political affairs of everyday life happening there in Rome. This Nero is going to put him to death. And yet, so focused is he on his passion to make Christ known, he says, I'm a soldier of Christ Jesus, not getting entangled in the affairs of civilian living. He's not saying to Timothy, Timothy, get up a petition to petition the Roman government for my release. He's not saying contact the Roman Senate. He's not saying engage in some election of some consul or proconsul or what have you. He says no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Let me ask you a hard question that different ones of us are going to answer in different ways. What will it mean? And I don't know if you realize this, but there's an election coming this year. What will it mean in the coming election season not to get entangled in civilian pursuits? You see, while we should be good citizens of our earthly home, we must always keep in mind that we are ambassadors on mission. We belong to another place, heaven. And we are Christ's emissaries To proclaim the good news to the lost. Our energy, our time, our money should all reflect that reality. As such, we should view perceived political enemies with love and not with disdain as seems so characteristic of all sides of politics these days. And we are soldiers of Christ not of some political party. I'm struck by how Paul, in the midst of a very political environment, reminds Timothy, as I think he's reminding himself, we're soldiers of Christ. As soldiers, we should anticipate the discomforts of a soldier's life. That means... Soldiers get sent where they don't necessarily want to go. Carol and I just returned from the Solomon Islands, where the 2nd Marine Division endured unbelievable casualties in the midst of an unbelievably bad environment. More more soldiers died of disease and infection and malaria than died from battle wounds. Okay, it was a hard environment the soldiers there didn't say, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I kind of want to go to Monterey, California for my soldierly duties. Oh, okay, well, we'll send you where you want to go. No, that's not how it works. A soldier goes where he is sent. As soldiers of Christ Jesus, it means that we won't necessarily go where we want to go We are told what to do, and it's not always precisely what we want to do. You see, we've lived in such luxury here in in our nation that we have forgotten as believers that we are soldiers first and foremost. I don't know if you've ever experienced it, or perhaps you know someone who has, who went to the recruiting uh, uh, center to sign up for military service. And the recruiter says, oh yeah, you wanna be, uh, and then fill in the blank. You know, you wanna be a uh, electrical engineer on a nuclear sub, we've got that for you, boom. You know, you wanna be this, yes, you do this, yes. Oh, you wanna do this, yes. And guess what happens? Well, in almost every case, you don't get what the recruiter said you would do. Why? Because a soldier, and in this case, I mean, we can talk about any person in military service. I know that calling a Marine a soldier is a big no-no, okay? So, I get that, okay? But just to use the term that's used here, anybody in military service goes where they're told to go, and they do what they're told to do. You're not in charge of your life, Christian. You're not. Your commanding officer is. Why is it that so many Christians live so badly? Not wickedly, mind you, but badly, inanely. People who are aimless and bored, amusing themselves with video games and social media. It is the entanglements of the affairs of everyday life, translated here as civilian pursuits. I fear that is the single most important reason for the weakness of our churches because we haven't accepted our call as soldiers on mission to change the world. Be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Second, uh, well, let me just say, a good soldier pleases the one over him, the one who enlisted him. Who enlisted you as a soldier of Christ Jesus? Well, if you understand the Bible, if you read the New Testament, you know that God called you before the creation of the world, (laughs) that there's something that was going on long before you were ever born. It's Jesus who enlisted you. You didn't enlist yourself. God called you And you came to him because he called you. And a good soldier pleases the one who enlisted him. What that means is we deny our pleasures for the sake of the commander and of the team. We deny our pleasures for the sake of the commander and the team. There's a beautiful illustration of this in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, Uriah is on the battlefield. And David commits uh, adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And so David is trying to cover it up because Bathsheba's pregnant. He wants to get Uriah back in town so that it can all be covered up and, and make it look like Uriah's the dad. And so he gets Uriah in town. He says, hey, take a break, go home, and enjoy yourself. It says in the scriptures, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said this to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab, that was his general, and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live? And as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. You see, he was a good soldier. He understood that he denied his pleasures for the sake of the commander and of his team. David said, Well, okay, stay here today and tomorrow, and then I'll send you back. And then David invites him to dinner that night, and he gets him drunk so that he would wander off to his house. But at evening, he went to lie on the couch with the servants of the Lord. He didn't go down to his house. We're in a battle, brothers and sisters, we're not in a dream. This is real life here. We're surrounded. We're outnumbered. But the battle, as I have suggested, is a, it's a spiritual one, not a political one. The great World War II general Douglas MacArthur said In war, there is no substitute for victory. The use of our time, our tongue, our discipline, and our money should be directed by Jesus, our commander rather than our own independent thoughts. Be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, the second illustration that he gives on our mission is to be an athlete that competes honorably, an athlete who presses on to the goal. Uh, There can be no shortcuts to godliness. There's no such thing as microwave Christianity. Just stick me in a microwave, press 30 seconds, and zzzz, I'm a white-hot Christian. That's not how it works. And there can be no resting on past accomplishment. You don't, well, well, years ago, I was really involved in the ministry of God's Word or really excited about taking gospel to the ends of the earth. No, the significance of our labor as believers is not an excuse for breaking the rules. He's talking about an athlete competing according to the rules. You know, God gives us instructions. Things that are right to do and things that are wrong to do. There's a lot of people these days who are Christians that are saying, you know, I've worked so hard, I'm doing so much here, I deserve a break. And what they mean by that is, I can go ahead and sin a little bit and it's okay because I need a break. I'm tired, I'm weary. In fact, I think that that may be what's behind so many these days of pastors and church leaders who end up in moral failure. It's the result of very busy people thinking that it's okay to break the rules because they have been working so hard for the cause of Christ, and they make an excuse. The competing for a prize, it's not crowned for the prize unless he competes according to the rules. What prize is that? Well, we saw that in our First Corinthians series, First Corinthians 9. <clears throat> do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Jesus' question that he asks in Luke 6.46 is a convicting one. Here's what he asks his followers. Why do you call me Lord, Lord and do not do the things that I say? Isn't that a convicting question? Why do you call me Lord, Lord and do not do the things that I say. So the third illustration of our mission is to be a hard-working farmer, verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> a farmer who works hard and expects God's blessing. I want you to notice the active vision of a farmer. Every farmer has active vision. What do I mean by that? It means that they are able to see something that hasn't happened yet. They take all kinds of resources. These days, hundreds of thousands of dollars of resources and equipment, fertilizer, seed, all the rest of it, and they stick that seed in the ground. Why? Because they have a vision. They have a vision for what's gonna happen in a few months when it's harvest time. Their vision is that that seed is going to die and germinate and sprout and grow and will actually develop more seeds that can be harvested and sold at a thousand fold, many thousands of fold. As you think about the life and career of a farmer, the active vision is perhaps the most important thing to see What hasn't happened yet? As believers in Jesus, do you have such a vision for the people around you? To see the harvest of what hasn't happened yet? They may not be a Christian yet. Have the vision. Planting the seed of the word of God with a vision for what might happen in the future. Uh, A farmer requires complete dependence upon God because while it is a normal thing to be able to plant things and then have them grow and produce a crop, does that happen every time? No, and sometimes it's completely dependent on things that are outside the farmer's control, particularly things like weather. That's not in their control. And so, a farmer has complete dependence upon God, and he takes or she takes risks based on faith. We should all be stretched by our church community, by our fellow brothers and sisters, to the point where all of us are accomplishing far more for the Lord than we ever thought possible. Now, the key phrase here in this illustration is hard-working farmer. I don't know of a farmer who doesn't work hard, who's successful in any way. They work hard. Now, if you ask them, are you a hard-working farmer? They'd go, well, no, you know, they're humble. But if you followed them around and lived their life, you would go, you know, that's, that's hard work. That's a lot of hard work. Working to the point of fatigue, as we think about our mission, as it's given in verses one and two, is there a point ever in our lives where we go, we are weary, working so hard to get the good news to lost people? We've just worked too hard at that. I'm convicted by my own question. The hard-working farmer, Paul says, ought to have the first share of the crops. They ought to share in the reward. And then he concludes this section with verse seven. I actually believe that verse seven is about the whole paragraph, right? And he says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think it over. Think over what you say, what I'm saying. There's so many times where we are behind, this is a Howard Hendricks term, we're behind on our think time. We just kind of go, 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 and we don't ever think about anything. And so we'll go to a small group and we'll get some great insight and we just don't think about it. Or we go to an ABF and we get some great insights and we don't think about it. Or we hear something in a sermon and we go, man, I ought to give some more thought to that. And we never do. I just want to urge you, brothers and sisters, catch up on your think time. If there's things that the Lord is speaking to you here, take some time this week To think over what Paul is saying here. Just think about it. Meditate on it. Ask the Lord for insight. And look at the promise there in verse 7 Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The implication is what? If you don't think it over, chances are good you won't get as much understanding. (laughs) So think it over. And then you will be able to flesh it out in your own life. You might say, oh, Scott, this is all high-minded stuff. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what I've heard from the presence of many witnesses and trust to others who will be able to teach others. That's all great. And how do I go about doing that? How about you think about it some more? Give some thought to it. So here's some applications. Be strengthened by grace, not by man-made rules. Always let grace be the determining kind of atmosphere of your life. Secondly, entrust the gospel to others. And here you should ask yourself two questions. Who is teaching you? No matter how old you are, you ought to be having someone or more than one person pouring into your life. Who is teaching you? This morning, as we do every Sunday morning at 8.30, we have a time of prayer for our church services, for our ministries. It's just over here, just outside the office. You're all welcome to come if you'd like. We'd love to have you. There were two guys there with me today, uh, Harlan Shad and Pastor Jeff. And as we were praying together, and they were praying for me, as I shared and uh, would share in the message today, it occurred to me that these are two men that are pouring into my life. And I just took time to thank the Lord for them in that time of prayer. Second question, whom are you teaching Who's teaching you? Whom are you teaching? Every Christian should have relationships in both directions. And that requires relationship, life, community, equipping. Need some tools, we have them for you if you're looking for them. Entrust the gospel to others. That's our mission in life. Thirdly, ask the Lord for help in enduring the discomforts of a soldier. There's a war on and you're a soldier in the battle. Ask for His special help in remembering what battle you are in. The battle for the souls of boys and girls and men and women. Ask the Lord for help in living life according to the rules. Too many people take shortcuts, and you may be one of them right now that's taking a shortcut. Ask the Lord for help in that, to stop that shortcut And then ask the Lord to help you to work hard for His kingdom, not for your own. Ask Him to help you to know how to take risks for Him based on your faith in Christ. And if you're looking for some way in which you say, you know, I'm completely ill-equipped for this, I just want to encourage you that the Spread Truth event that happens this summer in New York would be a great place for you to begin if you're thinking, man, I have no idea where to start with this because it's an equipping event that should equip you in the sharing of your faith so that when you get back home, the goal is when you get back home, you're equipped to share your faith. Oh yeah, you'll share it there in New York City, but the goal is that then you're equipped. So I just want to encourage you that that might be a good beginning step to take. Paul is writing these words as he is facing execution in the middle of a superpower that is on decline that is facing horrific problems and that is blaming Christians for all the problems. Notice how unentangled Paul's life is. May it be so that our lives are similarly focused. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this good word, a convicting word. Help us to be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And then Lord, we pray that what we've heard in the presence of many witnesses, we would entrust to faithful others who would in turn be able to teach still more people. Help us to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ that we would not get entangled in civilian pursuits, but that our aim would be to please the one who enlisted us. Help us to compete according to the rules, not taking any shortcuts, and help us to have the visionary hard work attitude of a farmer. Help us all to take time this week to think over what Paul has written here And Lord, we pray that you would give understanding in everything. Finally, Lord, I want to pray for that one here who's never put their faith in Jesus. Help them to see that all these things are part of the Christian life, but if you're not a Christian, they're not even anything you should consider at all. Rather, the person who does not know Jesus should think about how their life is broken by sin that Jesus came into this world to live a perfect life and to die as a payment for our sins. He rose again to prove that he is victorious over sin, and everyone who believes in him, trusts in and relies on what Jesus did at the cross to pay for our sin, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And I pray that those who've never put their faith in Jesus Christ would do so right now that they'd say, Lord Jesus, enlist me in your army. Forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. Grant to me the eternal life you promise. And help me to share this good news with others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.